When asked uh, why so many heroes in the Bible had serious flaws on a radio program, this is what a prominent pastor said. This is how he replied. Look at it on the screen. That's all God has to work with. All the perfect people are in heaven. The only ones on earth are full, are folks with serious weaknesses. The talent pool has always been pretty thin when it comes to moral perfection. So God works with sinners because that's all he has to work with. And he does some pretty amazing things through them. Now, that's a pretty remarkable statement. And if we took it apart, we would find that there's a lot of truth in that, wouldn't we? God has amazing track record of doing amazing things with those the world would call sinners, weak and flawed, or some other less flattering term. For example, think about Abraham. He lied about his sister, <laughs> I mean his wife. He called them his sister so he wouldn't be uh, killed. Think about Rahab. She was a harlot. Think about David. He was an adulterer. Think about Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. Think about Peter. Remember, he was a guy that denied Christ to the people that were asking him that if he was one of the followers of Christ. God has a track record of using people the world looks down upon to accomplish his purposes. That's what he does. That's how he operates. But the question comes up is, why does he choose to do it this way? For example, wouldn't it be much easier and much more effective to pick all the people who the world values and admires to carry out his will? You know, for example, why not uh, pick the rich and famous, the smart and successful, the gifted and talented, and the strong and the mighty? Now, it's not to say that God never uses people who are like this. God uh, does. For example, I think back in the Bible, he uses someone named Daniel. To me, Daniel's my hero. I mean, Daniel's my hero. Here's a guy that was hip deep. He was submerged. He was drowning in a pagan culture around him, and yet he excelled. He excelled as God was with him. And he never uh, compromised, he never threw in the towel, he never tried to uh, play a game of negotiation or compromise. And so there are people like that. But truth be told, God has a special place in his heart, for, in his heart to use the weak to overcome the strong and the foolish to overcome the wise. If we had to put it another way, it's this way. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Another way to say it, he uses the unremarkable to accomplish the remarkable. That's God's pattern. That's God's pattern. But why, you see? And this is what we're going to talk about today. Why does he choose to do it this way? And so Paul proclaims the truth to the Corinthians. Uh, Christians at Corinth to get them unified and back on track because they had so much, they had s gone so far as to adopt 
the thinking of the world, and they carried it into the church, and it resulting in terrible things. Now, to help us, we have to go back, and I'll ask you the question, have you ever been to Corinth? I've actually been to Corinth. It's a small little village now. <laughs> it's not the mighty city that it was. In fact, the Bema seat, you know, that we know about at Corinth, it's just a small pile of rocks. And you wouldn't even know that that was the Bema seat, except there's a sign that says Bema seat. <laughs> you know? So all of the glory of Corinth has been reduced to just a pile of rocks. But that wasn't the way it always was. This was at one time a very prominent city. Now, they were pagan in their beliefs, behavior, and lifestyle. So much so, so much so, that if you wanted to insult somebody, you called them a Corinthian. You said, you Corinthian. And when a person heard that, those were fighting words. Because you did not want to be identified as a Corinthian. Because they were noted for their debauchery and other pagan practices. Corinthian people were proud and they were puffed up. They were proud and they were glad of it. And if you didn't know that they were a Corinthian and how proud they were, they would tell you how proud they were. That's the extent that they would go to. They lived according to the human wisdom of the day and they prided themselves on every bit of that. Well, as God would have it, God reached into the city of Corinth and many responded to the good news of Jesus Christ, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Christ. and Corinthians became Christians. But guess what? They were prone to live as they used to. They were prone to live, to think and behave as they used to. They weren't so quick to leave it all behind. They wanted to carry it with them into the church. And so as a result, there's... The, the church was weakened by it. How? They, were, they produced deep divisions in the church. And so Paul addressed these divisions. He addressed these divisions. And so he wanted them to understand that this was Corinthian thinking. This was not godly thinking. They were applying worldly wisdom in the church, and they resulted in factions as people had their heroes among the pastors, teachers, and even Christ. You can just imagine, you can just imagine the chaos it would be as people were not quoting the truth of God. They were quoting the person who gave the truth of God. And that became their authority. That became why you should believe them. Because Apollos said this. Because Paul said this. Because Christ said this. And that's how they worked. We find that that happens today, don't we? And so what happens is it resulted in nothing good but chaos and division. And so as a general principle, so it is that when God's people fail to leave behind their sinful ways of thinking and living and bring it into the church, the church will quickly run into problems. They will quickly run into problems. Because why? Because the truth of God is diametrically opposed to the truth of the world. That is just the way it is, okay? And so you can't, the two have problems coexist together. Now, today, does that happen? Yes, it does. And let me point this out to you. It comes under the banner of tolerance. 
It comes under the, the banner of tolerance. And so when sinful behaviors are accepted outside the world, okay, then it's brought into the church. And then when people speak up and say, this isn't right, we shouldn't do that. Oh, you're not a very tolerant person. You're, 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 you're not educated. You're not up to date. You're not this. You're not that. Because you're not tolerant. God is not tolerant to sin, and neither should God's people, where it is clearly stated in God's word, okay? And so, this is the thing that we have to be aware of in the church. Believe me, in the days to come, not only in churches and where I'm going to be heading in America, but uh, here in Singapore, you will be labeled as intolerant. You will be labeled that, and it will have a negative connotation to it. It will not be a praise to you. It will be actually an insult to you. You are not tolerant. We cannot be tolerant of things that God makes clear in his word uh, uh, that uh, are sinful. Let me, we won't have time to read this verse, but let me read it for you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, those things we cannot be tolerant of. We cannot allow those kinds of things to breed in the church. Okay, because they're not of the Lord. Okay, and so please be aware of this. The church was divided at Corinth, was divided, and Paul wanted to get it back on track. And so he taught them the difference between the wisdom of God and wisdom of the world. And this is where Pastor Oliver helped us last week when he tried to show us the, the, the contrast between the two. You see? And so many times we have a hard time discerning between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And so when the church begins to struggle, there's only chaos. There's only division that will happen. So Paul starts out by reminding them of who they were when God saved them. Then he, started, then he, he presented to them why God chose them. And then lastly, what they now had in Christ. This is the passage that we'll talk about today, verses 26 through 31. This is a timeless message for all of God's people, whether you're young or you're old or anywhere in between, whether you are of any particular denomination or non-denomination. This is God's word to us. And that is God works, thinks, looks, and thinks differently from the world. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Very familiar passage, but one that oftentimes is dismissed. It's just so easily put aside. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Have you ever thought why sometimes people who don't know God, 
they come away and they hear about God and they're totally confused? They do. Why? Because they really don't know God. And when God says he's holy, we're not used to that concept because we're not used to meeting people who are perfectly righteous. And so all of these descriptions of God just go right over their heads. And that's understandable. That's understandable, okay? It's not condemnable, all right? But what we say to them is, please, let us introduce you to this God. Let us help you understand this God. Now, things you hear about this God you've never heard before, they're not familiar to you, perhaps they're not easy to understand, but that's okay. We'll walk with you, and let's, get, let's, let's go on this journey together to discover God. And so this is what we have to do. And because God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so his wisdom is different than the human wisdom that you and I are used to working in, functioning in, and deciding uh, things on. And so let's get on with this in uh, uh, verse 26 and on to verse 31. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, please. And first thing that Paul wants them to know is they needed to know who they were when they were saved, okay? Look at verse 26. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. When he says consider, he says, look, Look at this. Look at the situation, okay? Don't, don't try and sugarcoat it or anything like that. Consider this, he says, your calling, your status, your, when God called you to be saved, your station in life. And what does he say? He says, not many are wise according to the flesh. Hey, by human standards, there weren't many of you that were Phi Beta Kappers. There weren't many of you that were Singapore scholars, Okay. Let's admit it, you know, he just comes right out and says it. And then he goes on to say, not many mighty, not many noble, not many people who are powerful or influential or even of noble birth. You didn't come from a blue blood line, you, that kind of thing. You were pretty much ordinary people. Now, quickly notice here, he says not many. He didn't say not any. Okay, he says, not many, not any. There were some that were among them, of course, who probably came from hmm, substantial backgrounds, maybe had, you know, some success in the world, so on and so forth. Praise God for them. Sometimes it is not, we think that it is, it, it, that, uh, it is not that God chooses to sprinkle in a few ordinary people amongst the extraordinary Rather, the opposite is true. A few from the extraordinary among the ordinary. Okay? That's how it God does. Okay? He doesn't discriminate against the successful, the smart, the gifted and talented. No, he includes them in there. But if you had to look over the history of Christianity and you looked over the makeup of the people who come to Christ, guess what? It's pretty much ordinary people. It's pretty much ordinary people. So, God did not choose the Corinthians because of who they were, but in spite of who they were. Oh, 
oh, wow, wow. That's true. He said, I pulled you pagans out of your, your sinful lifestyle. I, you know, you, you deserve the wrath of God, and, and I spared you from the wrath of God here. Okay? In other words, Paul was saying, by human standards, you are not a great catch. You are not a great catch. Okay? There's so many other people better. Yes, by God's grace, some of us meet the world standard for being a good catch. But by God's standard, all of us are just what? We are all sinners. We are all sinners when everything comes, when every, at the end of the day. All of us have our faults and our flaws, some more, some less, some visible, some less visible. But when God finds us, usually we are fabulous failures, as one author put it. I love that term. We are fabulous failures before the Lord, okay? We cannot do anything to make ourselves better before God. That is why before we are saved, we have to see our true condition, okay? We have to acknowledge that we are sinners in need of salvation that God makes available through Jesus Christ, okay? Who died on the cross and wrote for our sins and rose again from the grave. Just like the Corinthians, that's where it starts. That's where it starts. The Corinthian Christians were not the crown of morality and purity. They were not the poster child for what you would think is everything right in the world. They were just the opposite when you consider human standards. And God saved them. And God saved you, and God saved you, and God saved me. Okay? That's who we were. And so Paul starts there. Then he goes on in verse 27. And he shows them they needed to know why called, why God called them. In other words, why did God choose to save them? Okay? And so I want you to notice here. Uh, in verse 27 on through 29, uh, these particular phrases, it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not. So they might nullify the things that are. Now, he says a mouthful in here. Let me try to take it apart for you a little bit to make it a little easier to understand. First of all, did you notice that three times he said God chose? Three times. Paul didn't choose. God didn't have a lottery. He didn't put it out and say, let's see, let's roll the dice and see who is going to become my child. Who's going to enter into the heaven, into heaven and be with me forever? He didn't do that. God chose, it says here, the foolish to shame the wise. The word shame there actually means to confound or confuse or to amaze. So God chose what looked like the foolish people of the world to amaze, to confuse, to confound the wise. Then 
God chose the weak to shame, there's that word again, to confound, confuse, and amaze the strong. And God chose the base things of this world and the despised. God has chosen in verse 28, the first part. It means the insignificant ones, the things that are not, okay, in verse 28. When he uses that phrase, the things that are not, I was really struggling with that. Now, I said to myself, well, now what on earth is God talking about? This sounds like a whole bunch of spiritual mumbo-jumbo, okay? When he says the things that are not. To the Greek mind, this would be very clear, okay? And they use this term to refer to people who are considered as nothing. Beyond nothing, they are useless. They are worthless, in other words, they might just as well have not been born. Whoa. <laughs> That's pretty severe. That is pretty severe. Uh, once upon a time, I heard a parent and a child having a big battle, knockdown, drag out. And it was getting more intense by the moment, even though I was trying to, hey, 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 slow down, slow down. You know, <laughs> we don't have to say those things. You know, calm down, you know. And it finally got to the very t pinnacle, the climax of the argument between the parent and the child. And the father said something I think he wished he could take back to this day. He says, I wish you were never born. That doesn't get a rise out of you? You see, that's pretty severe. And that exactly is what he's saying in the scriptures here. Paul is saying this. He says, God has chosen the things that are not, the things that are considered nothing, that are in the world's eyes, that are considered useless, that are considered worthless. They might never have, might not have, it would be better if they weren't born, he says. And he says, God chooses these people. These are the ones that God chooses. Well, why did God do it this way? God oftentimes doesn't stop to explain why he does what he does. You ever notice that when you read your Bible? So you're constantly thinking in your mind, you go, oh, why did God do that? Why did he do it this way? But this is one of the rare instances where God explains why he does it this way. Look a little bit further in verse 28. And then he says this, um, chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. The word nullify there means to put out of action, to make inactive, to cancel out, to completely negate the things that are. All the things in the world that we think are so great, God took the opposite in order to inactivate them, to, not, to zero them out so they'd be of no consequence. And then in verse 29, he says this, so that no man may boast before God. In other words, so that no man can glory, no man can take credit for what God has done. You see, we, we, we oftentimes like to take credit for what God does. My friend, we can't. We can't. 
because he takes us who are nothing to do something, all right? He takes the unremarkable and does the remarkable. You get the point? You see? And he does it so that none of us can ever claim credit or the victory. It has nothing to do, it has, it has everything to do with God's glory. God does some pretty amazing things through unamazing people. Uh, for example, another one of my heroes is Peter. Okay, Peter, when you meet him early in the gospel, he is unpolished, he is unimpressive, and any, if anything you would say, that guy is going to end up in jail. <laughs> that guy has no future. This guy is not worth a whole bunch, right? He was always putting his foot in his mouth, all right? He was a guy that was always asking God troublesome questions, Christ uh, troublesome questions. He was a guy that somehow just always did the wrong thing at the wrong time, okay? But when the book of Acts comes around, guess what? God took him, Peter, and he gave the sermon of the universe, and 3,000 people got saved. Now, isn't that amazing? The unremarkable to do the remarkable. Like when the, another example is like when by faith and sacrifice, a church of people of mostly simple means decides to rebuild its facilities in a period of hard economic times in their country. If that description fails to chalk up something in your brain, that's us. That's GBC, okay? You know, I'm sure there's going to be people in our audience who probably say, why didn't we do this earlier? When we had money in our pockets and money in our bank accounts and, and we all had this and we all had that, you know? But why now when the economy is tanking, when, when this is happening and that is happening? Do I really have to explain it to you? It's so that we cannot get the glory. So that we cannot get the glory. Okay? And so that's what God is doing. He excels at this. So he does all this so that the world's wise will be amazed and no one can boast that they did it themselves. The Corinthians were chosen by God so that he would confound the wise and no man can claim the credit. Paul taught them who they were and when God saved them and he and he comes back and he tells them why God chose them. But then there's one more thing found in verses 30 to 31. Something very important. They needed to know what they had in Christ. What did they have as a result of God's plan of salvation? See, I'm talking about how great God's wisdom is. And some of you are way ahead of me. And you're probably sitting there and you're saying to yourself, if God's wisdom is so great, what is in it for me? What did I get out of all this when I accepted Christ? Okay? Well, this is what he does. Paul goes on to show that God's wisdom is far superior to worldly wisdom 
especially as you see what God accomplishes by doing it his way. Okay? It says in verse 30, the first part of verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? We are in union with Christ, my friends. We have been joined at the hip with Christ, even more than that. We are one with Christ. And when you're one with Christ, there's a lot of perks and privileges that come with that. Okay? There's a lot of uh, blessings that comes with that. And he shows us this in verse 30. Now, this particular phrase, who became to us wisdom from God, Okay, the scholars are all over the place on this particular term, all right? So I had to land on something because I had to tell you something (laughs) today. So this is what God has shown me, that it means, this term means that Christ's death on the cross for our sins is the ultimate expression or example of God's wisdom at work. What is God's wisdom? He takes the unremarkable to do the remarkable. He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He takes the weak things of the world to overcome the strong and the mighty. That's God's wisdom at work here. And so he takes the, 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 the uh, uh, Christ dying on the cross as an ultimate expression of God's wisdom. For example, to the Jews... A crucified Messiah was unacceptable. It was absurd. Okay? When they heard this, Christ, the Messiah, and yeah, he's hanging on a cross, totally powerless. That's not the kind of Messiah we want. That's not the kind that God's going to give to us. Like, you know, they just sort of ignored Isaiah, (laughs) the book of Isaiah. But that's what they thought. To the Greek... To the Greeks, it was pure folly and foolishness that a God would die. (laughs) They said, what kind of God is this that he would die? This is pure folly. This is not the, the way to go about building a kingdom. So to the Jews, to the Greeks, at that particular time, this was totally out of their universe. That's why the the crucifixion of Christ became the ultimate expression, example of God's wisdom. So, when God effected this plan, okay, it was so that no one could boast. Our standing in Christ is the result of God's grace and the exercise of faith and not works. Turn to me to Ephesians, okay? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may what? Boast. Okay? So no one can take the credit. No one can stand there and honestly look into the face of God and say, I earned the right to be here. Okay? Can't do it. We can't do it. Because God accomplished what we couldn't do. Now, as if that weren't enough, 
Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, and he names all three things that happen to the person who receives Christ as their Savior. Three precious blessings. He says uh, in verse 30, he says uh, to us, wisdom from God and right, and, and he uses the word and in your English Bible, but could be translated both. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What is righteousness? Righteousness is being made right with God. And so if you think about it for a moment, that means when we're made right with God, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the wrath of God. Okay? We're made righteous. Then he says, not only that, the sanctification. What's that? You're made holy. You're set apart for God and for God's purposes. And hence, we are saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. And then lastly, he says redemption in verse 30, made free. Redemption means made free because Christ paid the price for our, for our sins on the cross. Now, complete redemption will happen when Christ returns. So we will be saved from the presence of sin. Okay? So, I know you're sitting out there and you're saying, man, you, 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 you're really going too fast, Pastor. Okay, let me summarize. Because of the way what God did, you and I are the recipients of humongous spiritual blessing. You and I, you and I are saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Fact be told, that's what has happened. None of these things can be accomplished by our best efforts or any human effort. Okay? And so that's why Paul had to start this. This is why Paul lays it out this way. He says, do you realize who you were when Christ saved you? You know, you, 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 you weren't as good as you thought you were. You're not as great as you thought you were. But God reached down from heaven through Jesus Christ and saved us. And then he goes on to say, you know why God chose you? He chose you because then none of us, none of you could ever boast and say, I'm the best. I can do this. I have done it on my own. And then at the very end, he says, listen, I want you to know that there are some very, very important things that God accomplished, such as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Look at verse 31. I think this is why Paul was building up to this. You know, just kind of like a great song, right? So she, a great song moves, okay? It starts a little slower, then it moves up to the end. And there's this great climax, there's this great crescendo, if you will. And so what happens is he says in verse 31, So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. At the end of the day, say glory to God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And so the Corinthians had... In Christ, all they needed to be, uh, to be uh, needed um, because of the actions of God based upon his wisdom. Now, 
how could this all be make a difference in our lives, okay? Now, here, here's the basic principle. God mostly, God uses mostly what the world considers the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. What the world considers as unremarkable to accomplish the remarkable, okay? Got that? That's the principle. Now, broadly speaking, we can thank God for his wisdom. Why? Because despite whatever we have done, God can use us. Whatever we have done. We need to have sort of the mentality that the Apostle Paul uses and describes for us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. This is what he says. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. More of us have to look at what we've done in the past of our lives and understand what God has done to remove all that, to negate all that. The talent pool for doing God's will, God's way, is pretty thin. Yet God chooses and uses us for his glory. We are repeat sinners. We have our addictions and obsessions. Our hearts are divided between two masters, ourselves and the Lord. Sometimes we get sick of ourselves to the point of loathing ourselves. Instead of confessing our sins and moving forward, we continue wallowing in our sins. We forget and often dismiss what we have, what we have because of God's grace. We have righteousness, a position of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So, as you're sitting out there and you're saying to yourself, <laughs> okay, you nailed me. You identify me. I'm a pretty ordinary person, but you just don't know what I've done in my life. So many bad things in my life, and God could never use me. That's what, what Paul says. He says, I was all of these things, and yet God chose to use me. Now, more personally, we can be encouraged. Despite who we are, God can still use us. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, <clears throat> First Thessalonians chapter 5, and this is probably the verse that's kept me going for 35 years plus in the ministry, okay? And that is First <clears throat> Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass, okay? We sometimes look at ourselves and we say we aren't much and we can't do much. We say to ourselves, we're not smart enough. We're not strong enough. We do not know enough. We are not influential enough. Who's going to listen to us? But we need to realize that we are just the kind of person God delights in using for his plans and purposes. Let me give you an example, okay? I went to uh, Panama, Panama, for a mission trip. Pa Panama is banana land, okay? It's banana land. That's where they grow the bananas, okay? There's just acres and acres and acres, plantations of bananas. 
And so <clears throat> I was able to meet some very humble pastors. And one of them just blew me away. Why? Because they were a single parent. They, had, they, had, they were a single parent. They had very little education. They had many children. And they worked tirelessly in a day job in the banana plantation. But yet, at night and during the weekends, they served not one church, but several churches. Unreal. And so I was just awestruck as I saw this person and what God was doing through them. They loved the Lord and they loved the people of God. Faithfully, they preached the good news and exhorted the saints to trust the Lord and obediently obey the Lord. You know, there was no, nothing fancy here. There was nothing fancy. But they were doing the work. This led me to believe that God was using the least to do the most. And I came away from there truly humbled by what God was doing. And if God could do that with this person, there's a little bright light of hope for a guy like me too. You see? So no matter what you have done in the past, no matter who you are now in terms of abilities and so on and so forth, God will use you if you let him. So be thankful and encourage that God favors the weak over the strong. God delights in using those the world sees as insignificant. Losers, if you will, and turns them into winners for his glory. God uses those who, according to the world standard, are the least to accomplish the most. Why? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I hope that this is a message that will really mark the hearts of the people of GBC. We are not the greatest in the world. In fact, by the world standards, we're probably pretty insignificant. But God wants people like us so that he can do only what he can do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we live in a world that values, treasures, and I would even say go so far as to worship the stars. It worships those who have so much and can do so much. And yet, Lord, in your wisdom, you have chosen the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And you also use some that are extraordinary to do the extraordinary too. But Father, we stand at the threshold of being used by you. So Lord, help us to grow more thankful and be more encouraged than ever. 
as we face the days ahead. Thank you, Father, for your mighty wisdom that confounds the strong and confounds the wise. In Jesus' name, amen.